0: At the end of each week, I am joined by a guest to help us distill and further examine what we heard in trial that previous week. Again this week, my guest is Abby Smith, who serves as Professor of Law and Director of the Criminal Defense and Prisoner Advocacy Clinic at Georgetown University. Together, we'll discuss the strategy and the effectiveness of the rebuttal closing by prosecutor James Krause, as well as the jury questions to the judge, the defense team's second motion for mistrial, some of the comments by Judge Bruce Strader during deliberations, and of course, the verdict in the trial. My conversation with Abby Smith is coming up right after the break. And now, my conversation with Georgetown Law Professor and Criminal Defense Attorney, Abby Smith. Abby Smith, thank you for joining us for this final installment in our weekly recap conversations on the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse.
1: Hi, Carrie. Thanks. I can't believe we're at the end.
0: Yes, we are. Well, let's jump right in and start with Prosecutor James Krause's rebuttal, closing
1: argument. What did you make of that? It was a missed opportunity. The state has an enormous benefit in being able to close first and then have a rebuttal argument in response to the defense. And I just don't think they use those two closings as effectively as they could have. In particular, a couple of things. You know, Krauss was fine. He's not the most elegant orator, but he was kind of fine in some regards. But he missed what I think is at the heart of the case, which is Kyle Rittenhouse. And neither Krauss nor Binger really launched an effective, persuasive argument against Rittenhouse's credibility. The case is about whether there was a credible threat to Rittenhouse requiring him to discharge his AR-15 as many times as he did. And neither Binger nor Krauss set up an argument that said, okay, here's the thing about Rittenhouse – you don't have to dislike him to find that we've proven our case beyond a reasonable doubt. You don't have to not feel a little sorry for him in order to find that the case against him has been proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Simply because you might have found yourself feeling affected by his tears on the stand, that, that cannot stand in the way of finding that we've proven our case beyond a reasonable doubt. And then they needed to list numerically the reasons not to believe the defendant, the reasons for finding him ultimately incredible. They needed to first say he's a witness like any other witness. And how do you judge a witness's credibility? They should refer back to the jury instruction and then ask the jury whether they can give his testimony any anyway weight in view of any number of inconsistencies, Self-serving statements, statements only he makes uncorroborated by any other witness, the kind of conduct he was engaged in. They needed to talk about that as unusual and not worthy of belief. They just didn't do that well. The other thing that I thought Krauss got sucked into was responding to the personal attacks on Binger. And it you know made it feel like it was kind of like a bad buddy film you know, Krauss really was irked by the attacks on his senior partner for the prosecution. He shouldn't have dignified it. He could have and should have said, look, there's a lot of, there are a number of personal attacks against Mr. Binger at the heart of the defense closing. And, you know, here's the thing. All right. You know, we're grown-ups. we're prosecutors, we can handle it. But he needed to say to the jury, this case is not about whether you like or dislike Mr. Binger. You can dislike Mr. Binger. You can dislike me and still find that we proved our case beyond any reasonable doubt. And he probably should have used the last thing he talked about there as opposed to the last, like, why would the prosecutor end a closing argument by talking about reasonable doubt? I thought that was very ill played because it's the prosecution's position, that there's no doubt of any kind about Rittenhouse's reckless, ill-conceived, avoidable behavior.
0: Absolutely. I was really struck by Krauss finishing on doubt. Doubt is the realm of defense attorneys. Doubt is not the realm of prosecutors. It was really mind-boggling, actually.
1: Exactly. That was. Now, he could have handled that differently if he wanted to talk about more precisely how there is absolutely no reasonable doubt in this case with regard to self-defense, then argue it, make your assertion, and back it up with some points. There was sort of too much conclusory gloss to his rebuttal. It should have been surgical. The best prosecution rebuttal is surgical. It takes a couple of the defense, not all of them, but a couple, and deconstructs them and shows how they're just not shouldn't be given any weight. His rebuttal needed to be all about Kyle Rittenhouse. And that would have actually been effective sandbagging on the part of the prosecution. Because I didn't think the defense did such a great job of arguing the credibility and reliability of Rittenhouse. I think they let him speak for himself. And they kind of used his testimony here and there. And Binger, in his initial closing, again, it was kind of conclusory, the noun liar is harsh. And yes, the prosecution needed to say Rittenhouse was lying. I actually prefer the verb. But there needs to be a bunch of points to support that assertion. And it wasn't enough because Binger apparently wasn't well liked in this trial. He kind of came across as kind of pedantic and a bit fussy. So it wasn't going to be given a whole lot of weight for Binger to call him a liar. That could be discounted as just his opinion. But they both, and in particular Krauss, if Krause had sandbagged, a really well-constructed argument about the reasons not to believe Kyle Rittenhouse and diffused the jury's sympathy a bit. Say, all right, he's 17 years old. It's unfortunate that he made the following bad choices. Okay, he wept on the witness stand. He's not the first criminal defendant to weep and won't be the last. And, you know, they could make that argument a little bit better than the one they made in their initial closing, that his tears were tears of fear for himself and not regret for having taken lives And call them crocodile tears, but you have to not just call it that, say, point to the jury and say, here's when the tears happened. You know, and I would ask you whether that seemed orchestrated. And I would ask you in whose interest those tears were. And I would also point to the jury instruction. Here's the thing about criminal defendants' testimony. I mean, the reason that defense lawyers are often afraid to put on our clients is because we know it's the show. And we know that good prosecutors will be able to make an argument pointing to the reasons that our clients are not perfect witnesses because they seldom are. But there is additional ammunition that the prosecutor could have used, which is the jury instruction. And the jury instruction in every jurisdiction in the country has words, language to the effect of the defendant's testimony should be viewed and weighed the way you would any other witness's testimony. However, you should understand the defendant has a stake in the outcome. And any good prosecutor would use that instruction, would point out that Rittenhouse had seen everything in the trial that happened before he testified and to point out his stake in the outcome and his self-interest. And that has to be something the jury weighs in assessing the credibility of his testimony. He has more reason than anybody to testify in a way that favors him.
2: to find out if it's right for you.
0: In the second part of our conversation, Abby and I continue our assessment of the strategy and the effectiveness of James Krauss's rebuttal closing argument. I think the one thing that Krauss benefited from was that he was not Binger. When the prosecution saw how defensive the defense was around their narrative of the drone footage that seemed to show Kyle Rittenhouse provoking the incident between him and Joshua Zaminsky and Joseph Rosenbaum and provoke Rosenbaum to chase him by pointing his rifle at Zaminsky. I think that should have been the clue to them how to structure their closing. They should have made it all about that.
1: I think that's really astute because it's another place where the prosecution was not as crisp as they needed to be. The word provocation as a noun has no real meaning unless it's attached to those instructions about, you know, you don't get to claim self-defense if you yourself were the provocateur. They didn't really explain that. And man, I agree, Carrie. The defense was clearly frightened by that drone footage. So why didn't the prosecution go harder on that? And why didn't they explain in the language you just used? What you said would have been better in the in the prosecution's rebuttal than what they said. That You can see it's a drone, you know, there's something kind of intrinsically reliable, however the footage... Yeah, neutral. Yeah, it's neutral and reliable. It's from afar. It's like, you know, when you take a photo or you take a video, inevitably it has the perspective of the person taking the the photo, right? That's that's like the art of photography. But no, this was like taken from above. And they should have used that. That should have been one line of argument for why Rittenhouse shouldn't be believed is that he's pointing his gun all around. He's acting like a big shot. And the other way to argue... Credibility. And this is something that, you know, I think people have trouble articulating because it's not that easy a concept. But how do we as human beings determine whether somebody's telling the truth or not? What are the hallmarks of a truth telling, candid, forthright person? One of the hallmarks I often say to my students and postgraduate fellows is a witness who's willing to say some stuff about himself or herself, but it's not all that flattering. They're willing to admit that they did some stuff wrong or they regret it. And I don't think Rittenhouse did that. Rittenhouse admitted that he wasn't an EMT, yes, and he had to accept the language that was inaccurate, but he didn't accept the language. It was a lie. He never signed on to that. I, I think there was something in that that could have been exploited much more effectively by the prosecution. You know, why was he unwilling to say, yes, I was a, I was a liar and I'm embarrassed now. If he had said that, then there might be some reason to believe him and to give him what he says some credence but he couldn't even admit that he was a a teenage lifeguard posing as some kind of big shot. What does that mean? What does that tell you? And you've got to decide whether there is a reason to doubt in a matter of importance in your own life. Would you trust that guy? I mean, you've got to kind of offer up some sort of hypothetical example that would get them to more critically assess Rittenhouse. Rittenhouse became the case. But I I agree there should have been a one-two punch. I agree with your point very much that it was written house plus the drone
0: Let's move on to the judge's instructions and his little tag at the end about the current president and the former president and what they said and not allowing either of those things to impact their deliberations.
1: Okay, that was the most bizarre thing I've I've heard from a judge to a jury. I, I don't know what motivated that. The judge is obsessed with the media and obsessed with the media coverage of the trial and seemed unnecessary to me, What makes him think that the jurors are listening to... Current President Biden or former President Trump, I think he's overly obsessed with and wounded by the media coverage of the trial. Unless there is some indication that some juror was caught talking about the president or former president, well, I don't know why he would have mentioned any presidents.
0: While we're on that subject, let's talk about his litany of grievances. I felt like I was in a Seinfeld episode during Festivus where there was the airing of grievances. What did you make of Judge Schrader's list of grievances about him using the word victim in court and the failure to rule on the
1: first mistrial motion and all of that? I thought it was narcissistic and bizarre. A judge to kind of say in public on the record what he thought about media coverage. And it felt like it was a kind of a two step dance because, on the one hand, he was very offended at people second guessing his rulings. And then on the other hand, he pointed out that there were a number of esteemed or highly regarded law professors who, you know, agreed with some of what he did. It just was silly. And embarrassing. And let me just say again that I don't have any problem with the judge ruling that the word victim should not be used in a criminal case. But here's where I disagree with the judge these were not complaining witnesses. That's what he offered up as the alternative language. That's fine alternative language in an assault case where you have a live complaining witness who was alleging that he or she was a victim. You have dead people here. So they should have been called decedents. That would have been fine. Or the people who were shot or the people who were killed. That's perfectly fine language. And the prosecutor probably should have used that language because complaining witness is really not apt. I have much more of a beef with the judge allowing the defense to refer to the people in the street engaged in either a demonstration or a protest, calling them rioters and looters. All right, let's strike a compromise. If you think there are some, quote unquote, chaos tourists, then refer to the folks in the street as the people in the street. But rioters and looters, no, that's not accurate for everybody who was out there. And if political protesters is not the accurate way of describing them, then pick something more neutral. But I think it was wrong and an unfair characterization to call the folks on the street rioters and looters.
0: Yeah. I think that Schrader was clearly someone who had his ways, believed that he was abundantly fair in his way of approaching and way of running a trial, and was sort of shocked by the blowback against him and had thin skin about it. And it was, I think, unfortunate that he was the one presiding over this trial. I say that not because he continually ruled against the prosecution. In fact, he was sort of even-handed in his decisions, but he was really hard on Binger when Binger made mistakes and saw Binger as a willful miscreant when it came to the mistakes Binger made.
1: Yeah, he was too scoldy with Binger and too harsh it felt personal and it was personal sometimes but i think you're right overall the rulings were fairly even handed i you know i disagree with some
0: i think the biggest issue in the trial was the The video of Kyle Rittenhouse saying that he wished he had his AR 15 so that he could shoot looters outside a CVS store. And we've talked at length about the way that the prosecution could have arranged to get that admitted, even if initially it was ruled inadmissible. But we've covered, you know, two other trials the trial of the guys who killed Ahmaud Arbery and the trial of Robert Durst. And in both of those cases, the judges went out of their way to establish a sense of decorum and a sense that they were impartial arbiters of the law and that they let the jury decide the facts and did not tip their hands as to their feelings about the individual litigants. I think Schrader's great mistake was that he tipped his hand certainly in the way that he felt about Binger and the way that he felt about criticism of himself by the media.
1: I think the word decorum is a good word for what was missing here. The judge was too big a personality in this trial. You know, it's one thing to make rulings. It's another thing to opine about you know, his practices. But I want to return to The piece of evidence that you mentioned, and I could not agree more that that was a key piece of evidence the prosecution needed to fight hard to get in. A statement by the defendant that he was looking to shoot people is huge. And that was a misstep. There was another piece of evidence too that I've come to feel stronger and stronger about, which is that it was a mistake, frankly, to cover up Joseph Rosenbaum's hospital stay and the kind of hospital it was. I think the prosecution would have been better off saying, yes, Joseph Rosenbaum has a history of some psychiatric problems. That doesn't mean he's necessarily a violent person. Unfortunately, many of us have family members and friends who have struggled with mental health issues. And, you know, here's how you know he's harmless. All he had was a plastic bag with his belongings. I would argue if I was defense counsel in the case, had a reason and good cause to have that come out. That who the guy is, you know, even though he's now deceased, that the stuff about him that arguably could have made Kyle Rittenhouse fearful should be allowed in. And I think the fact that he had to stay at a psychiatric hospital is the kind of thing most judges, I actually think, would allow that in because Rosenbaum is not the defendant. So the weighing of prejudice is a very different matter. But I actually think that it kind of looked like the prosecution was trying to hide something from the jury, which then later comes out in the closings. And I think that's not helpful to the prosecution. The jury needs to be able to trust the prosecutor.
0: I think that's a good segue into the defense motion for mistrial while the deliberations were going on. And in this case, they were making the motion based on the fact that the jury was allowed to see the drone video, that they were allowed to see blowups of the drone video, and based on the fact that the drone video was late in arriving into evidence... And that inadvertently, it seems, they received an inferior quality copy of the digital file of that drone video. So first, what did you make of their arguments on that front?
1: I thought they made the argument they had to make to support their motion for a mistrial that It was significant evidence disclosed late and of a quality not consistent with what was ultimately shown to the jury. I mean, I think those are the points. I think it's really interesting. They were clearly, by they, I mean the defense, they were anxious about that drone footage. And they were anxious because it depicted Kyle Rittenhouse as much more of a provocateur. That's, you know, not a good look. For somebody that you're arguing is a scared kid being attacked at every turn. You know, that's much more the guy with bravado strutting around with an AR-15 and pointing it at people. I just think it's so interesting that that became big. The defense must have felt worried and vulnerable because of that drone footage. And the jury asked for all the footage, which is not surprising. Of course they did. You'd like as much video, you know, pictorial evidence of what happened as possible. Well and they
0: specifically asked for the drone footage to be ready for them to see and to view.
1: Yeah, and that freaked the defense out. I understand why. I'd be freaked out too if I was the defense lawyer and that was something they asked to have at the ready because that's prosec- that's the prosecution's evidence. That's that's strong prosecution evidence. It's not like they wanted to read back Kyle Rittenhouse's testimony.
0: I was shocked that the prosecution didn't jump on that motion and join in the motion vociferously and ask the judge to bring it to a head immediately. Obviously, they were dealing with a motion to dismiss with prejudice that obviously they didn't want, but to have a motion to dismiss without prejudice based on something that obviously happened and that they were not culpable in, but that they recognized set the defense back, I would have jumped at the opportunity to do this over, possibly with a different judge. But even if with the same judge, you could have approached the whole thing differently. Can
1: I say one thing about what you just said it's the puzzle of what lawyers are thinking at various junctures in the trial. You know, did the prosecution not get that it wasn't looking good for them? I'm not sure they did. And the jury had already been out for a while when that motion was made. And so maybe the prosecutors thought we're, we're in this. Because in retrospect, I couldn't agree with you more, and, and that's when hindsight is twenty twenty. Man, oh man, why not get a mistrial and retry this case? Now the prosecution has discovery of exactly what the defense is, gonna you know, they, they've been trying the case as if it was a discovery proceeding. Now they would learn, they had learned everything the defense is going to throw at them. They could have done such a better job the next time around.
0: Yeah. In retrospect, the prosecution, as you say, could have said to themselves, this was great discovery. We know how to argue this now. Now. Number one, as you suggest, Joseph Rosenbaum had a mental illness. Everyone's family is touched by mental illness. That doesn't mean he deserved to die. Number two, Kyle Rittenhouse initiated the provocation by pointing his weapon at the Zaminskys. The initiator cannot claim self-defense, no self-defense on Rosenbaum, no self-defense on any of the others properly prepped Grosskreutz. They could have recognized that that was a mess and could have been done much better. They could have properly prepped Martin Howard about any suggestion of an ambush by Rosenbaum and Zaminsky on Rittenhouse. They could have properly prepped James Armstrong about his video evidence analysis. And they could have focused on the fact that Rittenhouse was a wannabe who got in over his head and stopped with this suggestion that he was a white supremacist or some you know, heatmonger. And then finally, and most importantly, they could have appealed the ruling about the allowance of the video of Rittenhouse saying he wanted to shoot looters and clarified that they would only use that as rebuttal if the witness testified.
1: Right. As impeachment. And The other thing they would have gotten, the other great advantage in a retrial was they had sworn testimony by Kyle Rittenhouse, a ton of it, and he was bound to say some things Differently, there were bound to be inconsistencies. There's nothing like having that record before the prosecution. I mean, how fun! You, can, you know, cross them up in any number of different ways based on his previous testimony. Plus, also the guy kept giving statements on social media, and he was seen in various places. I think that kind of stuff comes in more at a second trial as admissions by the defendant. Yeah, it's, it's too bad.
0: I think it was curious that the judge held his decision on both mistrial motion under advisement and let the jury fully deliberate the case and deliver their verdict without delivering a decision on either mistrial motion. And obviously the acquittal made those motions moot. But if the jury had come back hung, or if however unlikely it seems to us in retrospect, they had come back with a conviction of Kyle Rittenhouse, I wonder how the judge would have ruled. I wonder if he would have dismissed the case with prejudice or without prejudice.
1: Yeah, I don't know. That's really, really interesting. But the length of the deliberations also is an interesting thing. Did the prosecution arm those who were leaning for conviction? I mean, clearly there were discussions the jury must have been split at a certain point. They were out for several days. 24 cumulative hours of deliberation is a that's lot. That's a lot. It's a lot. And, you know, whenever a client asks a defense lawyer, gee, they're out for, you know, this long, what does it mean? It means they they require that kind of time to come to a decision. You know, is, is that good for the defense? Is that good for the prosecution? But the prosecution must have known this is not a slam dunk. That's the context in which that second motion for mistrial was heard. We've got a jury that's really grappling. You know, can go either way. And I think the prosecution needed to be wide eyed about the fact that Rittenhouse was a seventeen-year-old white kid who was a lifeguard and had no record, and you know he has no record because he testified and wasn't cross-examined about any record. And that's the kind of person, unfortunately, who you know is presumed innocent in the way that the presumption of innocence is supposed to be. And you know the jury would absolutely put the government to its burden of proof in a pretty fierce and vigorous way for somebody like Rittenhouse. I just think the prosecution should have known yeah, this could go either way. Why not do it again now that we know what we. know.
0: Well, Abby, I want to give you this opportunity to offer any final thoughts about this trial or the experience of viewing it, listening to it, and discussing it over the past several months.
1: Well, Carrie, I want to thank you for inviting me to comment. It's been a fascinating experience. I've never had the opportunity to look so closely through trial transcripts and through listening to the actual testimony of an entire trial like this, your question's, about the case i have always been really thoughtful and I think it's a great project. My hat is off to you for this entire project that you're doing at jury duty. I hope that law students everywhere give this a listen. The Rittenhouse case was so surprising to those of us who knew very little about it, who had only just kind of skimmed the surface. I understand much more now how the case ended. I understand the acquittal much more now than I ever did from just kind of paying attention to press summaries. I think there's something very important about this trial in particular during this period of our history, you know, because Rittenhouse is a young white guy with a gun and because the active shooter narrative was a kind of subliminal theme throughout and because the case took place in the context of initially the shooting of a Black man in Kenosha, Wisconsin, by police officers. And the initial protests, whoever they may have drawn, were about Black lives mattering. And yet we have an acquittal. It's a rare thing for a person to be found not guilty for shooting two people with a very high-powered semi-automatic weapon and nearly killing more could have been a handful of others. I just think there's so much to think about in this case, kind of socio-culturally, as well as from the perspective of our criminal legal system.
0: Well, I want to thank you for coming back each week and for your contributions to the conversation. I found it truly fascinating and really appreciate all of your time and all of your thoughts.
1: Uh, It turned out to be my pleasure. Thanks so much for asking. It was fun. All
0: right. Abby, thanks again. Take care. That concludes our final episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Join us next week as we begin season five of this podcast, Jury Duty, the Robert Durst prosecutor speaks, an in-depth odyssey through the Durst trial with its lead prosecutor, John Lewin. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Our guest on this episode was Professor of Law at Georgetown University, Abby Smith. It was co-produced by Chris Taracone and Aaron Karenik. Our consulting producer is Brittany Bookbinder. It was edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and Trial Audio is courtesy of Law & Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the first episode of Jury Duty, The Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks.